Uh, let's go to Jeremiah, Jeremiah. <laughs> I have a scripture here that's pretty cool because you know, Jeremiah is a heavy book and, and so was Isaiah. We've been in some pretty heavy stuff. You know, we've been talking about things like hell and what, what remember last Sunday, we, you know, that we start out, you know, what is um, horribly shocking? Remember that was the, that was the beginning of our verse. Uh, if you had the King James, wonderfully uh, horrible. <laughs> uh, and, and it's the things that the Lord considers Horribly shocking, what is that? Well, if you remember, it was the, the prophets that were lying to the people and the priests that were doing stuff out of their own you know, ambition and their own objectives and, and means and methods. And then the people loved it that way, remember that? And, uh, and, and this was such a, a grievance to the Lord and, and the Lord would say, this is horribly shocking. Uh, and so we kind of gave ourselves that admonition. We need to watch out for, you know, priests that will lie to you and, and uh, the prophets that will lie to you and the priests that will be for their own gain and how people love it that way. We have to watch out for that. If you missed that last week, you can, you know, go to the website and pick up that teaching. But today it's kind of the opposite. It's not that which is horribly shocking, but we're going to read about that which delights the Lord, the things that delight the Lord. But before we get into the things that delight him, we're gonna talk about things that you have to kind of watch out for. And there's, a, there's sort of a warning here. Um, and it has to do with what you and I boast about. Uh, is boasting ever a good thing? Is there ever a good boasting? The answer, yes, there is a good boasting. And, and the Lord's gonna tell us what that is. Uh, but there's a lot of really bad boasting too. And that's what we, we tend to major on in our lives, boasting about things we shouldn't be boasting about and what have you. Um, but all that to say, um, uh, let's take a look here. It's Jeremiah chapter nine, verse 23 is our text. Again, we'll look at this whole chapter on Wednesday in its entirety, but we're just gonna pull these two verses for the morning. Jeremiah nine twenty-three. And there it says, thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this. He that understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, saith the Lord. In these things I delight, saith the Lord. Here in our text we have, um, in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, that which is bad boasting and that which is good boasting. And, uh, and the Lord wants us to, to um, you know, uh, be cautious, take a warning. In fact, there's, there's three warnings here and then a word to the wise. That's the way I'm gonna look at it today. Three warnings. First, there's a warning to the wise. Second, there's a warning to the strong. Thirdly, there's a warning to the rich. And then we're gonna talk about uh, you know, a word to the wise uh, that the Lord gives to us here. So let's break this all down. First of all, a warning to the wise. Um, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. You know, this is something that in the days we live, we see people uh, who boast of their wisdom. In fact, there's people that even sort of boast that they have a monopoly on things like science. Isn't it interesting that the Bible sort of talks about science that in the last days there'd be people that are engaging in science falsely so-called? Boy, did they call that one right? Does the Lord get it right in his word every single time? 
Um, you know, let me give you an example, and I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna try to be as neutral on this as I can. But, um, but here's the thing. Now, this is a rhetorical question, and don't ask this. And by the way, um, you know, at Athey Creek here, if you wanna wear a mask during COVID, wear a mask. And, and you know, some of our staff wear a mask here, and we're, we're, you know, we encourage you to wear a mask if you want to. But at the same time, there's a reason why maybe some of you might, why aren't people wearing masks? You're murderers, you're all killing people. There's, there's extremes on the mask thing. Why? I should have brought it with me. I, this, I'm, I probably shouldn't have even gone off on this rabbit trail, but um, you can go to the CDC website today. It's still up. I'm surprised they haven't taken it down yet. But you can go look it up today and they say masks are totally ineffective with this virus. It's right on the CDC website. You can look it up. Um, there's things that amaze me, like for example, that are still up on the websites. Uh, now, maybe since election over, but like for example, did you know you could type in antifa.com and it took you to Joseph Biden's webpage? It's like, wow, did, did, did somebody like check their stuff and see if, anyway, the, the CDC says masks are totally ineffective on this stuff. So there's, there's people in the, our country wonder, which one's the, the true science? And, and if, you're, if you're a mask supporter, you, you, know, there's, you, know, you say, well, obviously it's covering your mouth. And come on, any brainless person knows that it's gotta be better than not having, just having your mouth open to everybody. And, and there's, there's kind of this, and science, and you'll hear people quote scientific facts about the, the masks and how good they are. But as somewhat of a student of politics and, and trying to find out what the health organizations have said, it's amazing because a lot of the health experts are saying the masks are a total waste of time. Um, I've talked to many doctors in our fellowship. We have some high quality, high level surgeons, doctors, and what have you. And all of them are saying, no, the masks aren't helping. When I was in the emergency room, uh, uh, because of a kidney stone, which is my first one, and hopefully the last one. <laughs> uh, and uh, there I was in the emergency room, and they were all, the doctors and the nurses, everybody was saying, yeah, the masks are told. Because I was kind of asking them, and I could tell they were frustrated. And, uh, and, and I, it, was, it was an interesting thing, you know. So, so and then I, there's, there's a few nurses that are in our church that are saying, no, Brett, the masks are really important. And science tells us that. So here's the problem that I have. If I take kind of a neutral 50-50 stance, I can show you doctors and reports and studies that say the masks are a waste of time. Some are even saying they're actually a detriment. Um, I know it's a detriment. I need oxygen. I'm a big guy uh, and I'd like to breathe. Breathing is good for me. Um, and some of those masks, I've had to kind of find the, the best mask. But um, you know, actually one doctor explained to me the size of the coronavirus and what have you. Um, you know, it's so tiny and microscopic that most of the masks that people wear, it's like throwing sand through a chain link fence. Um, it's not even close to doing what it needs to do to stop the coronavirus and what have you. And um, maybe you saw the doctor on, um, on uh, uh, YouTube that, went through uh, like five different masks as he smoked his vapor thing or whatever. And, and as he exhaled, you could see which masks, the, the smoke was like totally uninhibited through the mask. And he was explaining how much bigger the smoke droplets are than the coronavirus droplets. And I mean, you can just look at it, but the, the thing is both sides of the argument are claiming science. Science is on our side. So minimally, no matter what side of the argument you are on a mask or no mask, I'm not trying to convince you one way or the other. I'm just saying it's equal. That's the troublesome thing. That's why the America's having a really hard time getting behind the mask because um, there's total disagreement from science. 
And if you're telling me, Brett, you just don't know that the real science has said this and that, I've spent a lot of time looking all this stuff up and, and really careful consideration. No, I'm not an expert, I'm not a doctor, I, I, last guy in the world to know this stuff, but I sure have looked at a lot of people who are brilliant thinkers. And so then I start to think, boy, the Lord was right. You know, humanity, we think that somehow we're gonna solve all our problems with our own wisdom, with our, with our science. Um, the warning to the wise, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. The longer we think that we are the solution, uh, that we're the ones who are gonna save humanity from disease and pandemics and stuff. You know, <clears throat> it's really interesting because as you look in history, oftentimes you can see where the Lord intervened in times past. You know, the Bible says that God is Jehovah Rapha, the God that heals our bodies. God made us, he knows our bodies, he knows our issues. And yet science has excluded God largely. And so some people say there's a battle between Christians and believers in the Bible and science. Not so. Um, I believe science is always, uh, true science is supported in the Bible, but we need to watch out because if we think that our science is gonna eclipse God's holy word or what God says about life and humanity, then we're sadly mistaken. And, and that's the problem. A warning to the wise, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. There are those today that would say, you know, uh, we know more than you know, what the Bible says or what people are doing. I think this issue of the church, um, it, it's such an amazing thing to me. Oregon is, is kind of tweaked out. I mean, I can go get my meth and my cocaine this morning and be perfectly fine now in Oregon, perfectly legal, but you go to church, you're gonna get arrested. Did you hear what, what Kate Brown said in her, in her conference there or whatever, her press you know, conference? She said, she said um, this is not, I'm not asking, I'm telling. That's what she said in the question answer session there. And she said, you know, the state police are ready, uh, you know, to, uh, you know, and, and she said that you can get cited or you might even be arrested, uh, depending on what the police officer deems necessary. So I'm thinking, wow, what an irony. I can go get my meth and my, my uh, crack and my marijuana and uh, I'll be great, good to go. But go to church, you're in big trouble. Hmm. Or, or God forbid you use a straw. <laughs> my question is, can you use a straw for your cocaine? <laughs> I'm just asking, I mean, uh, if you're an Oregonian, that's a dilemma. It's a dilemma. Save the fish and the turtle. Uh, or do your Coke, what, what are you gonna do? That's man's wisdom, it really is. That's, we're seeing the wisdom of man on full display in Oregon, man's wisdom. That's why I'm so thankful, you know, and, and I'm not trying to be overly political today. I, I, I know I might sound like it, but I'm just saying I'm more into the biblical truth. I, I love that we get to handle God's word. And, 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 and so be careful. Let's not be those that glory in man's wisdom. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. You know, the smarter we think we are, the dumber we tend to look. I love that story of the plane that was flying on that sunny day, a small plane. Only four passengers were in there, but the, the pilot, there was, a, there was a pilot and two teenagers and the pastor there in the plane. And the pilot jumps up from the cockpit and runs to the back there where the other three passengers were. And he grabs a parachute and he said, I'm sorry, we're out of gas, the plane's going down. I, I'm a pilot and I have a family at home, I gotta be safe. And he grabbed the parachute and just jumped out. 
Well, the three were looking at each other. Well, one of the teenagers grabbed a, the pack sitting there and he, and he says, well, I, I'm actually the smartest teenager in the world. I'm gonna be the one that probably solves cancer and issues. I gotta be saved. And he jumps out. Well, the pastor looks at the other teenager and says, son, I'm, I'm sorry, we're in this situation, but I, I've lived a full life and man, I just, I, I'm okay with this. And you take the last pack. And the, the teenager looking kind of smug, he said, chill, preach, no problem. The smartest teenager in the world just grabbed my backpack. <laughs> that, that is the condition of the smartest people in the world. I believe a lot of our smart people are grabbing backpacks rather than uh, parachutes today. I really do. And so you and I, we can chill. We can trust because guess what? We have the true parachute. That is Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. We have true safety. We don't have to worry. We don't have to be fearful. I love that. A warning to the wise. Let not the wise man you know, boast in his wisdom. Very important stuff. Well, all that to say, the next one, a warning to the strong. Um, and that's, that's, uh, that's an interesting question. The strong or the wise? Neither let the mighty man glory in his might, it says here. One thing that philosophers and leaders and uh, people groups have, have argued over the centuries, you know, even the Greeks argued about this a lot. Um, wh which one's better, to be strong or to be wise. And, you know, the debate goes, you know, basically, you know, the wise, maybe they can, you know, outsmart what's going on in the world for safety, for, you know, health, for prosperity, or is it better to be strong so that you can defend yourself or take over dumber people groups or weaker people groups? You know, what's interesting about this, that, that debate is history has played it out in kind of an interesting thing, both the rich and the strong. Um, because if you study world history, have you ever noticed, it seems like oftentimes the lesser people uh, were the stronger people. What do you mean, Brett? Well, you know, it, it, it's like when, when uh, you know, Babylon, the great, led by Nebuchadnezzar, um, it would eventually fall to a lesser government, a lesser power. The Medes and the Persians came. But um, Babylon was wise and they had technology in that day. They had might and power. They, their city was seemingly impenetrable. They, they believed it to be impenetrable. Nobody could besiege the city of Babylon. They could live for 20 years in the walls of Babylon uh, without anything, you know, any problem. The, the army would have to be besieging that city for 20 years if you wanted to do it. But if you remember, a bunch of kind of, you know, they, they considered them sort of like, you know, cavemen were coming to take them over. So they laughed and they partied in Babylon when suddenly the Medes and the Persians conquered Babylon. And after the Medes and the Persians, a little group called the Greeks, Alexander the Great. You know, the Greeks were taken out, you know, by a lesser, less powerful group. I mean, in a lot of ways, you, you see this, you know, the Romans, uh, everybody that was really powerful and smart and stuff, they ended up getting wiped out by kind of a lesser group. Well, Brett, you, how can you say lesser? Well, it had to do with this issue of strong. You know, Tilla the Hun. Uh, the Huns, how did the Huns, you know, sort of, I know they didn't really conquer Rome if you're a history buff, but they did sort of in, in a way. How did, how did you know, uh, Genghis or Genghis Khan is actually how you say it. How did he uh, go and wipe out the British knights? Uh, the, these guys were just a bunch of Australopithecus men as in their mind but they were skilled warriors. A warning to the strong. So the problem is 
a lot of times we think because we're strong, we may not be the sharpest knife in the drawer, but hey, we're strong. And we can take care of ourselves. We have this false sense of security. And, and I sometimes wonder if we as Americans do this. By the way, have you heard the talk of civil war in our country? Um, one of the things that causes me great concern as a student of the civil war uh, that we had years back in the 1860s, you know, um, both sides thought they were gonna dominate. No problem. You know, we got this. But it became really this horribly bloody war. And I, I think that I, I sense that in the groups today, whether you're Antifa or, uh, you know, uh, on, on the Proud Boys or, or whatever side of group, you know, you're on, you know, well, we're better armed, we're smarter, we're stronger, this and that. But that's what people have said for centuries. If you're a student of history, everybody thinks they're stronger than everybody else. Bring it on, man. And then civil war happens and it's the grossest, bloodiest, saddest, horrifying thing in, in the world. Um, you know, it's an interesting thing when you trust in your strength. I think that's a bad, bad way to go. We need to put our trust in the true and living God. You know, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the strong man boast in his strength. By the way, have you noticed that sometimes your greatest strength is your greatest weakness? That's something that's just true. What is your greatest strength personally? We could talk about nationally. Um, but what is your greatest strength personally? Be careful, watch out. I think what you and I do is we tend to let our guard down in the things that we're good at. Yeah, I would never fall in that area. Nobody could knock me down on that issue. I remember Moses who uh, was by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit writing the scriptures. And the Lord told him to write this, Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. Do you see the irony of that? You want me to write what, Lord? Yeah, you're the meek. I am meek and lowly and humble. I'm the meekest man on the, just writing that, it's not meek. You know what I mean? Like it goes against the thing. It's like saying, I'm so humble, I remind myself of Moses. <laughs> the meekest man on the face of the earth. You're like, what? That doesn't work. But because he was inspired by the Holy Spirit, he wrote, Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. So we, we can know that that's true. Moses was a very meek man. Now, what is meekness? It's not weakness. I hope you understand that. Meekness, Jesus said that of himself. It's the only autobiographical statement Jesus made about his demeanor and his character. He said, I, the Lord, am meek and lowly. That's what Jesus said about himself. So meekness is not weakness. But the, by definition, really, meekness is strength under control. You know, I think of a big horse with a bridle and a little girl can sit on that horse and just ride this powerful horse that could kill a man. Um, but the, the, the horse's strength under control. You might say that's a beautiful picture of meekness, really. And so Moses was a powerful leader, capable guy, but he was meek. But what was the biggest error that Moses made in his life? What was his biggest failure? As it turns out, Moses failed in the area of meekness. Do you remember there in Numbers chapter 20 when, you know, the whole uh, speak to the rock Incident. The first time, years earlier, he struck the rock with a rod and water came out and the people drank water in the desert. The second story there in Numbers 20, same rock, different time. The Lord says, instead of striking the rock, this time, Moses, I want you to speak to the rock. But Moses was a little hot under the collar. The people were, Moses, you brought us out here to die in the wilderness. And they murmured against Moses. And Moses came out and said, you rebels. That's the King James translation. If you look up like in the Latin, the word is moron. That's what he, he says, you morons. That's really what he said. 
And then he says, must we fetch water for you? He's, he's ticked, man. And, and if I'm the Lord, I'm looking at little Moses down there. And, and I'd say, Moses, who's the we here? Are you fetching water for the people or is this kind of me doing a miracle? But Moses is so mad, must we, you morons, must we fetch water for you? And, and he takes his stick and he strikes the rock a second time. And man, if you know the story, <clears throat> that rock, according to 1 Corinthians 10, was a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ. The smitten rock where water came out, the water of life, great picture. But Jesus was smitten how many times? Once for all, Hebrews says, Moses ruined the picture by striking the rock. Remember the Lord said, no, speak to the rock and the water will come. And it's a great picture, but Moses ruined it. So, so water comes out by the grace of God and people start drinking. And in my mind's eye, I picture the story going like, I don't know if this is true this part, but I think Moses is probably back leaning on a rock on a bunch of losers, morons, as they're drinking the water, you know? Can't believe, Lord, you brought them water. <laughs> and, and as he's with his arms crossed and his toe tapping, watching them lap up the water, the Lord says, Moses, you have not sanctified me in the sight of the people. Um, the idea there of, of sanctifying is, Lord, Moses, you haven't set me apart from the people. In, in other words, you've kind of misrepresented my heart for this people. You, you have been angry at these people and I'm not angry at them. And you struck the rock rather than speaking to the rock. You, you disobeyed me there, Moses. And the Lord said, Moses, because you've done this thing, I'm not gonna allow you to go into the promised land. What a bummer, like that's a big deal. Um, Moses' whole objective was to bring the people into the promised land and he would only bring them to the border and then Joshua would bring them into the promised land. Moses' biggest failure was in his greatest area of strength. He was a meek man, but he failed in the area of meekness. Now there's good news about that story. Moses uh, didn't get to go into the promised land there with the Jews that day. But did you know that the Lord kind of snuck him in? There in Matthew 17, the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John went up to a very high mountain place with Jesus and suddenly, Jesus started glowing, whiter, brighter than anything they'd ever seen. And then along with Jesus was Moses and Elijah. And, and, and there was Moses in the promised land with the Messiah, Jesus. God kind of snuck him in years later. Don't you love that? And the reason I love that, that's how you and I are getting in too. The Lord's gonna sneak us in, not because we deserve it, not because we've earned it, but it's by his grace you're gonna go to heaven, by the way. I hope you know that. Uh, he's sneaking us in as well. Thank the Lord for that. But all that to say, be careful in your greatest area of strength. I see this you know, just in my own life personally and also as a pastor watching behavior of people over the years that, man, it's oftentimes the thing you think you would never do or the area that you thought you would never fail. That's the very area where it's almost like the enemy just watches for that weakest moment when your guard is down and then gets you in the area that you think you're strong. Let not the strong man or the mighty man, as it says, boast or glory in his might. That's the word glory, by the way. When we're saying the word glory, the Hebrew word for glory, it's a, it's a word that also means to like shine a light on something or shining. But in this context, it's almost like it's a person who's shining a light on themselves. Um, and it's, so it's kind of a boastful, look at me. Uh, so let not the, the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the, the strong man boast in his physical strength. Very important to watch out for that. Now, 
There's a, uh, uh, the third one here, and it's the rich man, a warning to the rich. It says here in verse uh, 23, uh, it says, let not the rich man glory in his riches. If we don't put our trust in our own wisdom or our own strength, man, that's the, that's the next one that's so um, tempting for us. And, and especially those of us that really are rich in this world. Paul warned Timothy, charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded and trust in uncertain riches. Um, one of the things the Bible calls riches is uncertain. Some of you have lived long enough to know that that is in fact true. You might have your 401k and your you know, life insurance policy and your, your financial portfolio, but if you've lived long enough, <coughs> you know that it's not uh, wisdom to put your trust in your uncertain riches. Some of you in 2008, your 401k disappeared. And like, what happened? What am I gonna do? I can't retire now for 10 more years. There were some of you that went through that. And you know, if we think that we're uh, somehow never gonna happen to us that way, you know, uh, our economy and all this stuff, uh, man, be careful putting your trust in uncertain riches. And not only that, not only could our you know, economy collapse, I'm not saying it's going to, I'm just saying that it likely will at some point. But maybe even more importantly than that, it, it has to do with your eternal life and can you take your riches with you? You know, Jesus talked about this, didn't he? You know, there in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter six, verse 19, he warned us, he said, lay not for yourself treasure upon earth where moth and rust corrupts and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, where thieves do not break through or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And some of us are tempted to put our treasure in our wealth here on this earth. And the Lord just says, man, don't do that. that that's fleeting. It's only for a while and it's not eternal. It was when J.D. Rockefeller died, very, very wealthy man. Um, the story is told of a, of a guy who went up and asked Rockefeller's accountant, how much did he take, how, how much did he leave behind, you know, his wealth? And the, um, and the accountant answered and said, he left all of it. He left all of it behind. You can't take it with you. Um, I, I used to say, you know, you'll never see a U-Haul behind the hearse. Can't say that anymore because people, every time I say that, people send me pictures now on social media with a U-Haul tied to a hearse. Um, anyway, uh, so it doesn't work anymore. But, but it's true, you're not gonna take stuff with you when you die. Uh, don't glory in your riches. There's nothing to glory about. There's nothing to boast about there. You know, the, the, again, you know, the, the idea of some people think their strength is, it, it kind of uh, passes between point number two and point number three. Their strength is their riches. Um, and riches can be a really good thing or it can become a really bad thing. Riches are great if you use them for eternal purposes. Um, you know, it's not that the, the Lord says that money is the root of all evil. He says it's the love of money that is the root of all evil. So if you're a wealthy person, you don't have to beat yourself up and say, man, I wished I was poor. You don't have to do that. Don't worry about that. But it's what you do or how you think about your riches. It can be your greatest strength or it can be your, your greatest weakness. Um, years ago, I came across this poem that talks about, you know, we were talking about the warning to the strong, you know, about how something that's really your greatest strength can become your weakness. Same with riches. 
This poem, I think, articulates it well. It goes like this. A person who calls himself frank and candid can very easily find himself becoming tactless and cruel. A person who prides himself on being tactful can find eventually that he's become evasive and deceitful. A person with firm convictions can become pig-headed. A person who's inclined to be temperate and judicious can sometimes turn into someone with weak convictions and banked fires of resolution. Loyalty can lead to fanaticism. Caution can turn into timidity. Freedom can be license. Confidence can become arrogance. Humility can become servility. All these are ways that strengths become weaknesses. And I think there's a fine line sometimes <clears throat> between things that are really, really good and, and, and then they turn into something bad and usually we're the last one to see when our strength has become a weakness. Um, that, that's why there's safety in a multitude of counselors, people that are looking from the outside into your life who care about you. They might be able to say, yeah, your humility has become servitude or your freedom has become license. Don't you see that? Where the church says, man, I'm free in Christ. All things are lawful for me. I'm free in Christ. And that's true. But when does that freedom in Christ become license to sin? And Paul says, should we continue in sin and let grace abound? He says, God forbid. You see, those same things that were once good can turn to be something bad. And I would argue that these three things are, are those, those things, the, the wise, the strong, the rich. And we, we, we don't realize that those things that are seemingly good and even coveted in our culture have become such a bad thing. And yet we boast about those things. But I love the scriptures because it doesn't just tell us what not to do or what not to be. I love that it gives us a word to the wise. And that's our final and last point here. A word to the wise, that's verse 24. But if you're gonna glory in something, he says, glory in this. And this is, this is the instruction. We need to break it down. He says, if you're gonna glory in something, glory in this. He that understandeth and knoweth me that I am the Lord, which exercise loving kindness, judgment, righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, saith the Lord. So what can we boast about? Well, there's two words here that you should mark and know in your Bible where it says understanding and knowledge. He says that, that, um, that he may understand and know me. First, let's talk about the know there. The Hebrew word for know in the original Hebrew text of the you know, Hebrew Bible uh, is the word yada. Uh, and you know, you've kind of heard this yada, yada, yada. Uh, it's, it's, a funny, it's a funny term actually, but actually it's a term that is also a little embarrassing. What do you mean, Brett? Well, the term yada is used in Genesis chapter four, verse one. Do you remember where it says, and so Adam knew his, his wife Eve and they conceived and gave birth to a son. Um, now we, we kind of read that and go, well, what does that word no mean? It does like, hello, nice to meet you. And they got pregnant. That's not what happened. The word no there is yada in the Hebrew. It's an intimate term. It doesn't just mean know about something. It means an intimate knowledge of, of someone. And that's the idea when it says, so Adam, yada, Eve, the idea is they went and had romance and they consummated their marriage and they gave birth to a son. That's the, the level of intimacy that this word kind of implies. So when the Lord says, oh, 
um, if you're gonna glory in something, someone who understands and yada, knoweth me intimately is the idea there. Um, I love that. Um, is it important to know the Lord personally? Oh man, how important is it? This, this is one of the scariest verses in all the Bible, if you ask me, it's Matthew chapter seven. Let me just read it to you. Um, it says this in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Many will say in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then I will profess to them, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. That would be the worst thing in my mind that could happen to anyone. The day you die, you stand before God, you say, hey, I'm here, I prophesied in your name, cast out, did a bunch of good deeds, gave to the United Way, went to Athey Creek, ha, I'm, this is a shoe in. And the Lord says, I don't even know you. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. That would be the worst thing that you could ever hear with your ears, I think, is the Lord saying, depart from me. And, and there's, there's a couple of things here that are required. One is that you do the will of my Father, which is in heaven. That's, that's evidence of a, of a true believer, a true Christian. You know, your, your faith without works is dead. So if you're a Christian, one of the things you'll see is a natural byproduct of being saved by God's grace through faith. One of the natural things that'll happen is you'll start to see your works will start to move in the direction of good works. Doesn't mean you're perfect. Just means that there'll be good works in your life. That's one of the evidences. But it says here, that's the first thing, you know, he that doeth the will of my Father, which is heaven. But then he says, but many are gonna come and say, we prophesied in your name, we cast out de devils and demons, and we've done many great works. And the Lord says, depart from me, I never knew you. I never, you know, it's that same Hebrew word, only in the Greek it's a different word, but it's the same intimacy. It's the same level. It's not just to know about. You know, the Lord reminded us, even the devil believes. Do you understand that? The Lord believes that God exists. But does the devil, yada, does he know the Lord personally and intimately? The answer is no. He knows about him. So if somebody says, well, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian. God bless America. Man, I, I vote and I, I'm, a, I'm a tax paying God, you know, God bless America Christian. That doesn't mean that the Lord knows you. The Lord wants to have an intimate, personal relationship with you. And that brings us to the second word employed by Jeremiah here, and that is the word understanding. He says, man, he said, but let him that glorieth in this, that he understands and knows me. The Hebrew word for know is yada. The Hebrew word for understandeth is sechal. And I don't do the thing from the throat the way I'm supposed to in Hebrew language. It's supposed to come from down here but I don't wanna gross you all out and have spit fly and stuff like that. But all that to say, this word sahal, uh, what does that mean? That means, uh, in, interesting word, it means to have insight, insight about something. Uh, God wants his people to be intimately acquainted with his kindness and his justice and his righteousness um, so then they can reflect the at attributes of God. That's what's being said here, um, that they have insight and have intimacy is kind of the two words you could also say. Understanding and knowledge, insight and in intimacy. Insight, that is God-given insight where you start to know the heart of the Lord. The Lord gives you insights to his attitudes about this world, to his character and his nature. 
We need to be given that insight, God-given insight. How do you have insight given to you by the Holy Spirit? By seeking, by reading and praying and knocking and worshiping and spending time in his presence. That insight comes from just, just knowing who he is. It's a little bit like a married couple. You know, there's married couples that I would say the danger is they've become roommates and there's no real intimacy and there's no real um, love there, but they have a marriage license and they're living in the same house. And you say, that's just such a sad existence and the Lord doesn't want that in marriage. But isn't it interesting the Lord compares our relationship with him with that of a marriage. And what you want for a marriage is you, you wanna see a couple that likes to spend time together and knows what the other one likes and what makes them happy. And that one person's trying to you know, do the things that really bless the other person. And even to the level of dying to yourself and giving up your thing so that the other person is more blessed. And, and having insight about the person's nature and character. But if you could care less, that's not a great marriage. In a sense, you have to almost look at it that way, that God wants to have a personal, loving, passionate relationship with his people. And that's what you can boast in. If you have understanding and knowledge of the Lord in this way, then you can boast about that. You can't boast about your wisdom or your strength or your, your wealth, but you can say, but I know the Lord. I know the Lord. I know his love, his character, his nature. In fact, there's three things that the Lord specifically names that he wants you and I to have intimate knowledge of. And let's break those down. Number one, he wants us to know his loving kindness. It says it right there. Loving kindness. Um, I love that word. It's one word, but it's two thoughts, loving and kind. Um, I used to have this uh, little word play that I did with our kids when they were really little. You know, and, and you knew there were certain things you were gonna, and the kids were just gonna be a little bit acting up, you know, and not getting along. You know, you're going to that store and uh, you know that they don't like going to that store and they're already grouchy. So I would say, I, I have this little thing, and I can't even do it as much anymore, the older my voice gets, but I used to say this. I say, kids, today the object is to be lovely, sweet, and kind. And that's how I said it. Say it with me, children. Lovely, sweet, and kind. That's what we're gonna do. And so they'd walk around, lovely, sweet, and kind. You know, they'd follow me around, lovely, sweet. And then and if they started to be grouchy, I'd say, what are we supposed to do? Lovely, sweet, and kind. And it was kind of a joke and we laughed it through, but I meant it. You're gonna be lovely, sweet, or kind, or you're gonna find a fierce father. Um, that kind of a thing. And, uh, and, and it was great, it was a good thing. But you know, the thing is about that human nature where we tend to be grouchy and, you know, and frustrated and angry. I love that we have a God who's full of loving kindness. Well, Brad, I don't see that. I read the Old Testament, I see blood and guts. I see nations being exterminated by God. You'll hear the atheists on all their blogs and people talk about, you know, I can't believe you guys love a God that will wipe out a whole people group. You know, it's, it's, it's an interesting perspective when you don't really read the whole Bible and see what the whole story is. Um, let's take one people group that God says, wipe them out completely. The Amalekites are an example of that. God told the Jews, wipe them out. How could a loving God wipe out an entire people group? Well, there's this assumption that people are basically good and, and people deserve to live. What you have to understand is people are basically bad and we all deserve death and hell. That's the truth. But the Amalekites were particularly evil. The first thing that was bad about them is they worshiped these pagan deities that were just grotesque. 
One of the things the Amalekites would do is they'd build their houses and in the mortar bricks of the, of the, of the house that they would build, they would take one of their living children, put them in a wall and mortar up right over them alive. And then that child would die and suffocate and be embedded in the walls of their house. Why did they do that? They worshiped a God that required that of them so that their house would ultimately be blessed. And as they walk in their house, they know that Junior was in the wall there and gave his life so that they could have prosperity and blessing. That's just evil and dark. The Amalekites also worshiped Chemosh and Moloch where they put their babies, some of them, on these sizzling red hot arms of these horrible iron gods that they worshiped and they would kill their children. Mothers would scream and they'd beat these drums. These were the Amalekites, that was their thing. Maybe even worse still, the Amalekites said, you know, we hate people the most, the Jews. We want to kill the Jews. And, and it's interesting because the Jews, they're God's chosen people. You might call them the children of God. And, and can you imagine being a father or mother today with a group of people saying, you know what? There's one group of people we wanna kill and that's your children. What are you gonna do to those people? Well, I'm gonna argue this. The most loving, kind thing you can do is defend your children. You don't let someone come and just murder your children. That's exactly what the Amalekites were bent on doing is wiping out the Jewish people. They were doing their own evil deeds at home. Not only that, they were doing this. They were just an extremely wicked people group that God says, you know what? It's over. They've been given 450 years to repent of these sins and they have not done it. So God says, time's up. And I believe it's one of the most loving and kind things that he did to wipe out the Amalekites so that the other nations wouldn't be infected with their evil, that the Jews wouldn't be wiped out with their evil. And you say, well, how do we know what nation is good or bad? We don't, but God knows, God knows that. So when I say God is full of loving kindness and the skeptic, the cynic says, well, why does the Bible have death and blood and guts? You have to read the whole story. And if you're really uh, careful, you might actually find out that God is loving and he does the right thing every time. And it's because he loves you and he loves his people. Well, what if you're not one of God's chosen people? Well, that's up to you. As a New Testament believer, that's a choice you make. Whether you choose to accept Christ, believe in the cross of Jesus, that he died, that he was buried and he rose from the grave. If you are a child of God by accepting the work of salvation, you're forgiven of your sins and you get a brand new start and you have eternal life in heaven to look forward to. But if you reject that, you're not part of God's chosen people. And there will come a day where righteousness will be given. Wrath is gonna be poured out. But God says in his word, Peter, he tells Peter this, you know, he says that I would that none should perish, but everyone would come to repentance and salvation. That's what God wants. So he's full of loving kindness. Don't fall into this mindset that people try to paint God as this great big cosmic killjoy that hates people. Yeah, God, run for your lives. Nope. God is actually full of loving kindness. I love that. And the Lord exercises that. Uh, it's, it's something he does often. That's the idea of the word exercise. So he exercises loving kindness. Now this is an interesting one, justice. The second one of three, we're almost done. Uh, justice, the Hebrew word for here is mishpot. And this word mishpot, it means uh, the idea of conforming to a standard or a norm. That God has um, sta uh, standards of conduct is the idea there. And, um, and the idea is that the Lord will hold people to a certain standard of conduct. 
Um, some would say, you know, like in our text here, it says that he has judgment, loving kindness and judgment. The newer translation put justice because that's a better word probably translating from this word mishpat, that he's got standards that he holds people to. And this is what makes the Lord delight uh, when people keep those standards and do what he says. Where can you or I find the standards that the Lord puts out before humanity? It's in the word of God. It's just that simple. Uh, you don't have to feel it in your gut. You don't have to say, I like to think of this. No, don't think of any of that. Go with what the Bible says. The Bible is, is what delights the Lord. Um, and so we're gonna delight in his justice. So you got uh, loving kindness, justice, and then righteousness is the last one there. Uh, righteousness, uh, tzedakah, it means, um, it means uh, rightness is an easy way of saying it. The idea of conforming to that standard of, of norm um, that God's standards of conduct were to be above that of the world. And his standards are righteousness, things that are right. And then the Lord ends his whole statement here in this by saying, these are the things I delight in. He doesn't delight in our wealth and our power and our wisdom, <clears throat> but he delights in his loving kindness, <clears throat> his justice and his righteousness. And you know, you and I will be a, a, on a better track if we boast in these things, that we know this about the Lord. I, I look at these three words and I have them up here for us to see because, <clears throat> you know, no matter what happens with lockdowns, no matter what happens with coronavirus, no matter what happens with Antifa, no matter what happens with Black Lives Matter, no matter what happens with the election results, Guess what the Lord delights in? You might know all those things and you might be an expert on social media, typing in all the conspiracy theories and, 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 get, and you know, putting information out there. Maybe true, maybe false. But the Lord says, don't boast in that wisdom. You can boast in this, that you know the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness. In other words, all those things that people are freaked out about today, you can find great peace when you just say, we trust the Lord. We look to the Lord who's our answer for all the problems of this world. I'm not saying you shouldn't, you know, some people are called to politics and some people are called to have a, be a voice in those things. But I think that far too many people are sort of almost boastful in their ability to say, I know about this stuff, that's wisdom. Some people are almost smug in their financial portfolio. Hey, I don't care what happens, I'm, I've got it dialed in. Some people, they think they're strong and nobody can mess with them and I, I've got gifts and talents and nobody can topple me. Man, the Bible says beware you know, when you're standing lest you fall. And this idea of boasting, the Bible makes it clear. It says pride goeth before what? No, you're incorrect about that. Pride goeth before, second time, anybody? Destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. See, I know more about the Bible than you guys, and I'm talking about pride here. <laughs> it's just a joke, I, I'm kidding. But it's true, pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And here the Lord's saying, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, the mighty man boast in his strength. Don't let the rich man boast in his wealth, but if you're gonna boast in something, boast in this that you know and understand that God exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness. That's where it's at. That's where the richness is. You know, um, I'd, like to, I'd like to take a time right now uh, to close this service. I'm gonna ask Joey to come up and lead us in a song. 
But, I, but I, I, I'm so thankful that you guys were given these little communion cups, coronavirus free, I might add, um, these little, these little uh, communion packets. If you didn't get one of these, by the way, um, <clears throat> right now pastors are gonna come down the aisles and they'll get you all set up if you don't have one. You can just wave at them, they'll, they'll know. <clears throat> but I'd like to take um, this ending of this service and, um, and we're gonna just go to the table of the Lord. And, and the reason I think this is important is because, you know, I talked about this uh, personal relationship that, that we know intimately and understand having insight of, of these things about the Lord. But, you know, if people claim to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, when exactly does your relationship get personal? You know, the married couple I was talking about, if they say, yeah, we're in love, and I'd say, well, what's the evidence? And for some couples, there's evidence. Um, and there's other couples, you kind of think, man, you're, you're almost like roommates. In fact, I don't even know if you like each other. I fear that there's a lot of cold Christianity where people say, I know about God, I read the Bible once. I'm at church, and here I am at Athe Creek, I'm, I'm a Christian. But my question is, is not, are you here in the building or watching online and checking a box? The question is, do you have a personal relationship with the Lord? And, and you know, I, I use that term intimacy when we talk about Adam and Eve and the word no. But did you know the greatest, most intimate act as a Christian you can have or do is to go to the table of the Lord? It's funny how these worship movements, uh, as much as I appreciate some of the music that comes out of that, and I love worship, singing songs, but you almost get a sense that Christians think that's the most intimate time is when you're passionately singing a worship song. It's not. Um, I think sometimes we, we, we've kind of made that part up a little bit. The most intimate time you can have with the Lord is when you go to the time of communion and you remember, like Jesus told us, to remember his broken body and his shed blood. And we get to do that right now. And I'd like you to kind of tune out everybody in the room and just you and the Lord right now, just to say, okay, Lord, I'm gonna, I'm gonna receive this communion. I'm gonna eat of the bread, I'm gonna drink of this cup and realize there's power here. You know, the Catholics teach transubstantiation. That is that when you eat the bread, it becomes the body of Christ, literally. And when you drink the wine, you literally are drinking the blood of Christ. And, and um, I understand what they're trying to do there, but it's not true. Bible doesn't say anything about that. But, but here's the thing. I think the Protestants equally make an error when they sort of dumb down communion and say, oh, it's just a symbol. We're just gonna eat it you know, religiously and just do kind of a ritual chomping of the, the elements. Uh, that's equally wrong. You see, there's power in what Jesus did. And when we eat the bread, know that there's power in his body, in his body. So when we eat the bread, we remember that it says, by the stripes that were put on Jesus's back, we are healed. There's healing power in the body of Christ. And, and the precious blood of Jesus is the way that our sins are washed away. Don't dumb down communion. When you eat the bread, understand you're taking in Christ and you're saying, Lord, I want more of you in my life and intimacy. And when you drink the cup, understand you're drinking, remembering the shed blood. And, and it's because of that forgiveness of your sins, your relationship with the Lord is restored into good standing. Even if you're the person I described that has this really distant, cold relationship with the Lord, it can be restored right this moment when you thank the Lord and you eat with reverence and you drink with thanksgiving. Man, your relationship is restored. You married couples know what this is like. You know, you've been distant and cold and you had an argument and then you kind of 
both repent and you have a nice time and then you make up. And it's that after that makeup time that you're just, there's just a greatness to your relationship. Some of you are like, we didn't know that that could happen. Well, it can. And, and that's what it can be like with the Lord. You can walk out of this room and say, Lord, thank you for loving me. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for giving me a brand new start and our relationships is restored. It's there for the taking right now.